Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. From KQED. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Thanks again to Dorothy Lazard, who joined us before the break. Back in 1968, just before she published I Know Why the Caged Bird Sings, which brought her global acclaim, Maya Angelou signed a contract to produce and star in a 10-part television series for KQED. Made during a trip that Angelou made to San Francisco while she was really living in Ghana, it's a remarkable document of its time, an attempt to show and celebrate the Black American experience and demonstrate its continuity with longstanding African cultural practices. Centering Angelou's voice and poetry and perspective, the series was, as one film researcher put it, a fascinating document of a brief period of time following the assassination of Dr. King when a politicized Black perspective found a place on the public airwaves. KQED's press release called it the first comprehensive television exposure of Black culture Void of white interpretation, condescension, or white interposition. There's even a black producer uh, of the series. Angelou made this series in San Francisco both because KQED pursued her, as we know from archival documents, and because, as she put it in a 1982 essay, for a time San Francisco became her home. She explained the name of the series. Blacks, quoting now, Blacks, Blues, Black, meaning that in Africa we were blacks brought by slavery to the U.S., our condition of misery could be called the blues, and now through our awareness of African heritage, we were proudly becoming blacks again. Joining us to listen back to the series and provide context for the work, we're joined by Cheryl Fabio, wonderful filmmaker who directed and produced Evolutionary Blues, a documentary about West Oakland's music and community. Welcome, Cheryl. Good to talk with you again. Well, nice to talk to you. Thanks for having me. And we're also joined by Dorothy Saruta, professor of Africana Studies at San Francisco State University, specializing in literature. Welcome, Professor. Thank you. Glad to be here. Professor Saruta, uh, you saw this after it sort of was re-released, re-pulled from the archives. Do you remember what your first thoughts were looking back on this film after having kind of studied these times for a long time? What did you think about it when it emerged from... Uh, from being lost? For one thing, it's so important that she was doing this at that particular time. There was a strong period of, of African-American activism. And the visual, what I think is so important about it and why people are appreciating today, I think it was the beginning of, show, of teaching through the arts, 
teaching through the visual and the musical. I mean, I think it, I think it was what influenced the eventual development of Sesame Street. The way you can mm-hmm. teach through the arts, through the music, through the personal, and identifying the situation that people are living and experiencing, and making it real. And so that was very, very exciting because she covered so many areas in that 10-part series. Yeah. Just want to let people know, too, if you go to KQED's YouTube channel or you just search in YouTube, you know, Maya Angelou, KQED, you'll, you can see the entire uh, series. Um, Cheryl Fabio, kind of, same question to you. When you first saw this series, um, what did you think about it as a filmmaker? Like, what did you notice? What were you drawn to? Well... Well, first of all, let me say that I watched it over the weekend, the the series. Mm-hmm. And um, I, you know, when I first started watching, I said, well, why didn't I, you know, why didn't I see it originally? Mm-hmm. And that's because I was out of town. I went to school in Nashville, Tennessee. Mm-hmm. So it was KQED. It wouldn't have been nationally broadcast. But as a filmmaker, my first thing is, Oh, these clips are amazing. Oh, yes. So I, I, I really love the clips. And I knew so many of those people. I really, it was, it was hilarious for me because, you know, like everybody has grown and old now, but <laughs> you're looking at people in their prime, including Maya Angela. I think it was breathtaking just to see her oh. at that stage and to recognize that for me, the thing, because, you know, teaching through the arts, uh, uh, the black, both art and political movement, that was all what my household was about. So there was nothing necessarily new and it also hasn't stopped in my world. Mm -hmm. But what was kind of amazing is I think that this was the first time that an African-American who had been living in Africa, coming back to America was doing that kind of dualistic conversation about what being African-American was about. Now that was, you know, that's truly a unique perspective, at least to me. Yeah. So seeing her was just amazing. I think, you know, we, we've lived with the person and so it's hard to reach back and remember. Well, yeah, we were all young one time and, <laughs> and amazingly beautiful, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Let's, let's listen in to Maya Angel. This is her introducing the entire series with some lines from the County Cullum poem, What is Africa to Me? Hello, my name is Maya Angela. What is Africa to me? One three centuries removed from the lands my fathers loved, the spicy grove, the cinnamon tree. What is Africa to me? This is a question I ask myself and I ask Black Americans, and I attempt in this series to answer it. Professor Saruta, this, can you tell us a little bit more about this time of sort of rising awareness of African heritage in Black communities? Yes, it was, it was all over. I was here, I had come here from Chicago to go to college at, around that time. And I remember on returning home, my brother picked me up at the airport in a daishiki. I had a big natural, and we got to my parents' house. And my brother said, where 
well, Negro parents, here's your uh, Black Power daughter, and I'm taking my African-American self home. So we had these three things happening within my own family that I could say wow. was looking at change. My parents were changing to, to stop being identified as Negro and wanted to be uh, uh, African-American. My brother was totally into Africa. Everything in his house was Africa. And I was truly into more of a black power feeling and movement with a feeling of a raised fist. And I think this was going on in Amer in African Americans. We were not all exactly doing the same in our ways of celebrating our blackness. And I think her series captures all of those different ways of being. And, and the, I mean, I'm at San Francisco State and as a professor. This was the home of the San Francisco, the, at San Francisco State of the, this, of the creation of Black Studies. It's now not only nationwide, but worldwide. And I think San Francisco, for some interesting reason, uh, became uh, the Bay Area because we got the Panthers here. We have other movements going on. And as this, and as you know from the program, she was she was featured at here as a professor as a filmmaker just mentioned in San Francisco. Mm -hmm. So she had come back from Ghana. Yeah, uh, we would like to hear from listeners on on one specific question here as we go through this. Did you see Maya Angelou's KQED TV series when it first aired in 1968? Give us a call now eight six six seven three three. 6786. That's 866733. 6786. Would love to hear from people who saw this when it first aired in that summer of 1968. Um, you know, most of the series is shot in KQED studios with just this incredibly beautiful, powerful figure in the center for of the frame for really long stretches. But the crew, as Cheryl Fabio noted earlier, also got some absolutely incredible footage out in the Bay Area. I want to um, listen into Cut 2, which is about kind of African understanding of religious observance. Let's listen. When in African ritual ceremonies, when a person goes into a trance, it's the same as when they, they uh, get, get the, the spirit in the black American churches. The black American churches have, the black Americans have a joy. There's a joy that black Americans have in praising God. In, in enjoying him, we saw it in a revival here in San Francisco. So, Cheryl Fabio, um, this is only one of like a series of really remarkable um, pieces of footage. When when you see this, when you see footage like this, are are you thinking like, how did they get that shot, or how did they get a camera in there in this way, or what, what's your thought? No, you know, actually, I saw Alan Willis's name in the uh, in the credits, and I was real clear how they got the shot because. He's one of the few, um, I mean, there, there were a couple of others, uh, Belva Davis and Bill Moore and, and a couple of others, but Alan was very well connected in the world. And when you see people enter spaces like that, that are kind of sacred spaces, not, not just religiously, but you know, personal spaces, 
you kind of know that the person who's entering with that really obtrusive camera Mm -hmm. has a relationship to the space, right? And I think that Alan, he gets these um, camera person um, credits, but he really does have the ability to produce in the Black community in a way that I think a lot of other people wouldn't think to produce, but also maybe didn't have the same access. Yeah. So I, I'm, I'm making an assumption there, but I'm pretty confident in the assumption that I'm making. Yeah, I agree totally. Oh, yeah. It's, it's really interesting because, I mean, just given the conversations that have been happening a lot around public radio about the need for greater representation of, of uh, different races and ethnicities on these airwaves, it was really uh, and behind not just, you know, uh, talking into the mics, but people working in production. It was really uh, kind of amazing to see that in the press release for KQED's materials on this, they make sure to note that there were black producers involved, too. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it really makes, excuse me, I didn't, go on. Oh, go ahead, Professor Suda. Oh, I'm sorry, I was was agreeing and I just wanted to add the way they captured her passion because I think what made that program so important and so embraceable is the way her body and her mind and everything, her eyes sparkling, Mm -hmm. all of that was captured on the camera and it shows her passion and it, it, it entices you to go with her into that program in a particularly interesting way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, the diction too, the way she spoke, I, I, yeah. She, um, she's orchestrating, orchestrating you into this show. It's about black life and without saying it, unapologetically black, but made the point. Yeah, amazing performer. Karen from Oakland. Welcome to the show. You saw this when it first came out. Yes, I was uh, nine years old and I lived in East Oakland uh, with my little sister who was um, four and my grandmother and mom. It was required viewing in our household. (laughs) What do you, do you have memories, specific memories of like little snippets or just like particular things she said or that you saw? Well, I remember that she just, I thought she looked like what I think a queen would look like. She was so um, just glowing and radiant and the way she spoke and the way she moved. And then she would have guests on. And it was just fascinating to see uh, people that looked like me and my sister, and my family. And it was inspiring. It made me feel like I could do anything. And so I felt like it had a real impact on our lives. And I thank my mom and grandma for making it a required viewing and something that we look forward to. So and I'm a 63-year resident of Oakland, and I'll, I'll never forget um, what my Angelou and Black Boots Black did for our family. Oh, Karen, right. thank you so much. Yes. That is a beautiful story. Yeah, and I'm glad, I'm glad you're still here, Karen. Thank you for... Yes, for... I'm still here. <laughs> West, <laughs> yeah. West Oakland resident, yes. <laughs> uh, Karen, thanks so much. Um, I want to... Listen, we couldn't talk about this series and not play some of uh, Maya Angelou reading. So let's listen into his cut four. This is a poem uh, that Maya Angelou wrote and performed. I'm going to tell you a poem. I quite often do on these programs get a chance to 
say some of my own poetry. This is a poem called A Letter to an Aspiring Junkie. Let me hip you to the streets, Jim. Ain't nothing happening. Maybe some tomorrow's gone up in smoke. Raggedy preachers telling a joke to lonely, sunless old ladies' maids. Nothing happening. No haps, baby. Oh, there's a slew of young cats riding that cold white horse. A gray old monkey on their back, of course, does rodeo tricks. No haps, baby. No haps. There's an old-time pimp with a space-age conch setting up some food for a game of tonk or poker or get em dead and alive. The streets? Climb in the streets like you can climb in the rear end of a lion. Then it's fine. It's a bugaloo and it's a shingling. It's African dreams on a buck and a wing and a prayer. That's the streets, Jim. Nothing happening. Can you dig it? Sure, Fabio. Listening to this poem, seeing this performance, it's kind of fascinating to think about this moment in Maya Angelou's life before she writes, uh, you know, the works that made her famous. And yet we can already see, I mean, even just the way she says poem makes me want to write poetry. I, I do think that one of the fascinating things in this 10-part series is the way that she brings poetry into it. And it does make poetry sort of a, front and center, you know, uh, voice. They're like tiny little essays that kind of move you through from if she's reading Paul, Paul Lawrence Dunbar to her own writing. Um, but, you know, my mother was a poet. Mm-hmm. And so not only that this cadence that's that's presented in this poem, you know, it's it's the talk of that time in that there's a shift from everything kind of coming from a very middle class perspective to to even some of those same middle class people, but also other people talking from a broader perspective about black culture. And, um, but I also, I think I wanna say, so she, it's lovely to see her read her poetry because I don't think all writers read their poetry as interestingly as a lot of the poets then did. And I think that's a precursor to some of this hip hop stuff because that went into spoken word, spoken word went into hip hop. And it's all sort of uh, when, when you're talking about good poems in all of these genres, it, they are sort of like essays of the time, short essays of the time. So I loved hearing her read her own stuff and also some things that are really difficult to read, like, um, you know, some of Paul Lawrence Dunbar's poems are, they're hard to read, they're lovely, and they're written in the, you know, 18, I've forgotten actually, 1800s, late, uh, early 1900s. And so there's a, a different, a different dialect going on. Um, to hear her read them, it was a joy. Yeah. Can, we, can I? Oh yeah, we got just a few seconds. Can I, can I speak real quickly that it shows the connection between generations because when you re- listen to her reading that poem, you think of Gwendolyn Brooks' poem, We Real Cool, it's on the same subject of wasting lives and dying soon. It shows, it's like Afrofuturism between Gwendolyn Brooks and Maya Angelou. And, and you, I believe she more than likely knew, I'm sure she knew of Gwendolyn Brooks' work. And 
it, so the two of Thank them Thank you so much, Professor Saruta. I'm so sorry to have to cut you off. We've got five seconds. Dorothy Saruta, Professor of Africana Studies. We've had Cheryl, Fabio. We've been looking back at Maya Angelou. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Soul to Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Soul to Story are available now.